Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to episode 11 of the Innovation Capital podcast presented by PatSnap. On today's episode, Ray sits down with Stephen McKinnon, who has more than 15 years experience in data science and engineering ML systems. He develops large-scale predictive approaches in drug discovery, specializing in the development of complex abstractions of proteins and biological information suitable for data feature engineering and advanced ML approaches. His slogan is Innovate the Problem. Stephen leans the research and development of new predictive technologies at Cyclica. He coordinates the integration of ML and biophysical tools to create effective AI solutions to complex problems in drug discovery. Stephen received a PhD in computational biochemistry, where he developed biophysical abstractions and classification schemas to describe 3D protein interactions. Today's conversation with Stephen is absolutely fascinating. It's technical and super informative. You're absolutely going to love it. And without further ado, let's jump right in. Stephen, welcome to Innovation Capital. Really excited to have you on the episode today. We've been Looking forward to this episode for quite a while because Cyclica as an organization, we've been following and and are close admirers of this space and would love to kick off, Stephen, with just a little bit about your backstory and how you ended up in the wonderful world of biotechnology. And then if you could segue into Cyclica's uh, mission and vision, and then we can go from there. So Stephen, over to you. All right. Well, hi, and thanks for having me on board. I'm always glad to chat and um, talk about um, what I've done and talk about what the organization has done. So um, my name is Stephen McKinnon. I'm the uh, currently the VP of Research and Development at Cyclica. Um, my background is in computational biochemistry. So both my bachelor's degree and my PhD, um, I effectively studied biochemistry, but... Uh, rather than do that, you know, with beakers and, you know, experiments in a lab, uh, my way of studying biochemistry has been looking at large databases of information and trying to glean new uh, insights uh, by trends in, in, um, in the data. So um, PhD was um, in kind of a topic that we would call structural bioinformatics which is a matter of looking at the 3D structures of proteins and, again, looking for patterns in how they interact with one another, entirely computationally. And I joined Cyclica uh, at the very early stages of the organization, so kind of in that uh, pre-seed stage when we were all in a basement, so to speak, as the first staff scientist at the time. So we kind of set out with an idea of trying to make predictions of how drugs might be interacting with proteins, uh, but not kind of in that sense of saying, here's a new protein target, what are all the drugs that might uh, be interacting with this protein target, but rather look to develop kind of an all-by-all solution to say, uh, well, in addition to what we're designing this drug for, 
what are all the protein targets that this drug might be interacting with. And this kind of follows an idea that um, there's roughly 20,000 different uh, protein encoding genes in the human genome. Uh, and no matter how well we develop a drug to interact with only one protein target to induce a therapeutic effect, it's quite likely that that drug is interacting with many different things. In fact, we know that it's interacting with many different things because it's being metabolized. It's being absorbed and moved from one place in the body to another. So we know that there's many different proteins that a drug is interacting with. We wanted to be able to um, use computational approaches to try and map all of those relationships. So I've been with the organization for uh, roughly uh, seven to eight years now, uh, kind of seeing it progress from this uh, pre-seed organization to uh, where it's at now. And uh, along with that uh, came the opportunity for me to start building a team of scientists. Initially first as kind of a main developer myself, uh, doing a lot of the uh, programming and a lot of the, the research directly. Then in terms of building a team, uh, finding uh, other like-minded scientists to kind of join us and, um, and help work on this pr uh, problem together. And kind of more recently, I don't really want to use the term managing because we have such an exceptional team that um, more just a matter of coordinating. <laughs> Makes sense. So is it fair to say, Stephen, that that moment in November last year when DeepMind's AlphaFold, where they're able to kind of really predict a protein's 3D shape from its amino acid sequence, solving that 50-year old grand challenge in biology. Does that moment segue into uh, Cyclica's vision of building out drugs, which are, in essence, like software built to spec? So they don't interact with anything else. They interact with the specific target and drive the solution there. So are some of, some of that work at DeepMind potentially a, a great moment for your organization to really accelerate this vision and mission you have? Uh, I think the progress that DeepMind made uh, was certainly exceptional. And, you know, what I particularly like about the solution is the way in which they think and combine many different forms of information to solve a specific problem. Um, the protein structure prediction, or at least the de novo prediction um, of uh, protein structures is, you know, certainly been... Um, a form of holy grail in the academic community uh, for long periods of time uh, in terms of having an, an understanding of how proteins fundamentally work, how they uh, fundamentally associate from these chains into these uh, 3D structures that are uh, little machines inside the cell, um, you know, self-assembling from a blueprint basically into, you know, a machine capable of doing the most complex tasks uh, we can imagine, even, you know, beyond our macroscopic views. Um, so, you know, certainly a great achievement on that front. Um, there's a lot of proteins that are going to be very well served from a uh, technology able to predict uh, structures. Um, in terms of the human proteome, for instance, uh, we're looking at 
from about 20,000 gene encoding proteins, around four to 5,000 have been solved in some capacity experimentally, of which another probably another 10,000 of those. So about two thirds to three quarters of proteins have some degree of existing cousin structure that um, can be used to model. And where a technology like AlphaFold comes in is really to look into those dark regions of the proteome, uh, in particular, the ones that have not been that aggressively studied by researchers and have an idea what those 3D shapes might look like. Uh, so definitely um, kind of a very important and meaningful addition in that context. And also for um, identifying um, protein structures in species um, that haven't been studied very much yet. So bacterial species that might be uh, pathogenic um, and, you know, very important to drug discovery and, and to human health, or the gut microbiome, which additionally, um, very important to human health as well. So uh, there's definitely a lot um, of potential for structure prediction technologies to impact those areas. It makes sense. Yeah, it's something that we observed closely here at Patsnap last year and we're really excited about. And, and just taking a 30,000 foot overview initially, obviously, we're now entering this glorious paradigm on how AI, data analytics, and classic bench biology are converging together. But in your professional opinion, Stephen, where's the backstory of this new paradigm? Everyone has a slightly different nuance lens on it. But where did this all start for our audience to really understand the beginning of this paradigm, firstly? And also, by 2026, where, where do you think we'll be in terms of impact on, on patient lives? Right. So I think that the advances in this AI-based um, drug discovery or I mean, machine learning has definitely been part of drug discovery processes for a very long time. There's a particular paper that um, I uh, mentioned before, the um, reviews that were talking about the impact of machine learning on drug discovery into the 1980s. <laughs> so uh, there's definitely a very long history of uh, trying to use information as well as we can, because in a lot of cases, the information that we have is limited and the scope of the problems that we're trying to solve is, is so large. So there's always been this motivation to use all of the information that's available as much as possible in order to kind of inform where experiments should go, right? If we look at all the permutations of possible experiments that we could do, for instance, chemical space, the number is so large, I don't think that there's an actual word for numbers this large, but 10 to the power of 60 is one of the numbers that tends to be cited for the number of molecules that look like drugs that could possibly exist or that could possibly be created. So when the magnitude or when the permutations of all the possible experiments that you could do in a program are so, uh, so large, uh, then it's very beneficial to have these computational predictions to help narrow that scope or to help focus where you're going to get the best bang for your buck in terms of research. A few things that have kind of ignited the more recent advances, I would have to say, are... Uh, robotic type approaches that were really common or really developing rapidly 
between say like the early 2000 and 2010 timeframe. Uh, so when people were collecting data and collect and, and performing experiments, instead of doing it on small numbers or, you know, tens, if not hundreds of data points, they were collecting tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of different data points. Um, so just kind of the scale and the number of different data points had increased. But also other advances in biotech. Uh, so it's not just about how many different measurements are being taken, but it's about the data or the information content within those data points as well. So there's much more dimensionality to those measurements. For instance, uh, next-gen sequencing, the technology that really kind of started picking up in 2008 to, to, uh, to, to the 2010 timeframe, you know, one experiment could measure thousands of different data points, right? So it's, it's that there's more experiments being performed and the information content within those experiments has much higher dimensionality. And, you know, with that comes the need for uh, computational predictions to kind of make sense of information content that's too high for individuals to consume in its entirety and try to make informed decisions uh, on that basis. And in terms of, would you say the rapid cost decline is also an opportunity, Stephen? So if we look at, I think it's been mooted all over certain portals, the cost of sequencing the genome in the early, say, 2000s was close to a billion dollars. Now, as of today, sub a thousand bucks in terms of cost decline. So does that play a big role moving forward as well, where you've got this deflationary effect of how AI and, and, and all the other moving parts around robotics and, and computational biology are, are really reducing the cost structure down, so making it more scalable and accessible? Yeah, so sequencing, for sure, you know, um, one of the great examples there of just kind of a biotech enhancement, um, you know, that's that's been made uh, more cheap, like that's been reduced in cost to the point of being able to do at higher scales. Um, but there's multiple contributors that really play a role in that. In essence, kind of an academic community out there that is based on performing those types of measurements and sharing that data openly with, uh, with the world uh, has gone a long way in terms of providing a basis to start developing new types of technology as well, right? So it's... Uh, it's it's not just the cost, but also that uh, community effect, and that's that's contributed to large public databases in the life sciences. Um, that's made way for companies to at least start up and to develop some new technologies, to try some new things, and to see what could or what uh, what might or what might not work uh, on this kind of information. Um, you know, secondly is also the accessibility, not just of the data, but the accessibility of algorithms. So um, there's a lot of great public toolkits uh, dedicated to machine learning um, that just make it very accessible to uh, start developing new technologies. Um, that certainly played a big role in it as well. Brilliant. So, so looking at this exciting space where you've got this convergence of DNA sequencing, synthesis, 
machine learning, computer vision, ML, automation in the lab, you just touched upon robotics. What we're also seeing in the marketplace is this new generation of biotech company, which is more akin to a platform business model, no different from maybe an Uber or an Airbnb where they've got elements like data network effects where other companies can build on their IP and their platform. Is that something that you guys have observed or are proactively participating there at, at Cyclica? Is that is that a, a movement that you're, you're keeping a close eye on where really the modern day biotech company is like a software platform? Is that a, is that a paradigm which you're, you're cognizant of or, or, or proactive in? Right. So I think that, um, you know, that's certainly a question that came up in the earlier stages of, you know, our development and so forth, because, you know, at the very beginning, when our company was just forming, we were coming up with new predictions that we expected could bring value to drug discovery around that central philosophy that I mentioned earlier, that we really wanted to know or be able to account for uh, not just what a drug is intending to do with its primary target, but with everything in the proteome, or as much of that as possible, upfront uh, as part of the design process for new for new compounds. So at one point, um, we develop a prediction. Um, the prediction is is good. It's got um, you know a good predictive signal that you know we're happy with. And then at one point, it becomes well, how does this get commercialized, right? How do you go from here's some software code and a form of prediction to, you know, here's a company with a business model and so forth. Um, so, and if we look at other uh, groups within the area, so the, um, I'm not sure, I, I can't really speak on behalf of other uh, industries as much, but at least within the AI for drug discovery industry, the drug discovery product life cycle, if you will, is a very, very complicated one. There's not a single path to go from, you know, I, I, I want a, a therapy for this particular condition to here's an FDA approved drug for the condition, right? Like there's not a single path. There's multiple different paths along there. And all of the different paths and all of the different steps, there's hundreds of different steps uh, that are involved in that research um, and that, um, the productization. So there's a lot of different areas where computational techniques can have an effect. Um, there's a lot of different places in which a technology could insert themselves. So naturally, there, there's a lot of companies globally that are being formed in this space. Uh, and surprisingly, not that many are directly competitive in terms of, you know, offering two tools designed for the same task. There's actually a very high diversity of the different tasks um, that each of the technologies are de developed to build. So, and then at one point at, uh, in developing a company, there hits a stage where we have to consider, is this something, do you wanna focus on being able to solve one problem uh, to do that really well and then to kind of broaden that problem uh, in terms of being able to address that problem in as many different partner research programs as possible. 
as a platform or know that that is a, a, a specific inflection point that really drives value within uh, drug discovery and then start building some drug discovery programs centered around that. So that's the kind of a trade-off between a more horizontal type business structure and a more vertical type business structure. So there's definitely two schools of thoughts with the different companies emerging in this space as to whether you take a technology and use that technology to design better drugs, or do you build a technology and partner and create a platform partnerships for a lot of different people to uh, to to help and assist a number of different programs in you know in their own research. Um, and that's certainly kind of a, an, a, an identity crisis that every company is going to face as they develop to some extent. Where are we at now, Stephen? So that split between kind of problem solution, building a, a capability which is pointed on a specific number of use cases, and then the opposite, more of a platform where you've got this core IP, core capability around data, and you're letting other folks build on top of you and you go from there. What is the, if this was like a pie chart, where's the split between platform and just kind of point solution? What what does it look like currently and where do you see see things heading? Um, I mean, like that's that's definitely a good question. There's been successes in this industry kind of in both areas. Um personally the 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 one of the things that I do um it's difficult to really kind of see what happens over the course of many years, right, in advance. Uh, the more the uh, focus tends to be on, you know, a point solution, the, the more that particular technology can be refined. And the more, um, the more that particular technology can be refined and the better that that could basically serve, Whereas the counter to that is at some point there ends up being diminishing returns on the development and uh, tinkering with one specific thing. All right. So perhaps there is actually an intersection that is better in which, you know, you start with a, an effective point solution and try to move gradually in, you know, directions upstream and downstream to, you know, improve on that or to kind of support partner projects for a longer period of time, I would suppose. This is so interesting, Stephen. Kind of, as you're talking, I'm visualizing our space, which is the classic software space where you've got platform companies, you've got thousands, if not over 100,000 now, point solution players, and they're all driving value in different ways. And, and that ecosystem is led to so much productivity within the enterprise and in a B2B context or in a B2C context. In terms of journey on the roller coaster, where, where are we in this kind of new paradigm within biotech where we're calling it comp bio? That's our kind of, <laughs> kind of uh, nomenclature internally here. But how far in are we? So if you were to compare it to, say, the dot-com, well, the early internet where you'd call 94, 95 being really early, then 98, you had the crazy dot-com boom, and then the rest is history, 2000 onwards. Where are we in the cycle, in, in your professional opinion, Stephen, in terms of this really building out and really making a, a game-changing impact on, on healthcare? 
Well, yeah, like I definitely know that cycle, and I, I, I for sure don't want to say two thousand timeframe, um, or you know, even anything before that, because it's almost uh, predicting that there's a bubble emerging. But I, I think that it's, um, you know, to, to, to some extent, we'd think that the comp bio might be that nascent pre-dot-com bubble with, you know, uh, big growth. But I don't quite think that that's the case because I do think that there's more foundation in comp bio than there might have been in that really early stage internet 95 to 2000 timeframe. Uh, and I think that really is because there has been so much, you know, good work in comp bio done for a long period of time, just under different namesakes. It wasn't under the AI namesake at the time. Um, various terms have come and gone. There's, you know, computational chemistry. There was a lot of focus on simulations and, you know, uh, there's this long history of simulations and predictions, or predictions through the form of simulations or machine learning uh, within that particular space. So I, um, I'm actually thinking probably closer to 2006, 2007 era, um, where, you know, the, the crazy uh, hype cycle may have came and gone, but we're kind of looking at this bit of democratizing um, drug discovery, democratizing computational biology, and making that more um, accessible broadly and, and contributions from many different organizations globally. So I'm thinking more of, um, you know, sort of the rise of the YouTube and the Facebook and the Internet 2.0 type stage uh, than I am thinking about uh, pre-dot-com bubble. Wow. God, you're making me smile with that. So 06, 07, God, I thought you were going to say 2001, 2002, like we're early, but we're going to get there. What has been some of the big force multipliers, the core technologies, which set us set us up beautifully now for that 07, 08, 06 kind of era where we're really going to accelerate and really start making positive impact. In your opinion, what's been happening backstage to kind of set this up 2021 onwards, in, in your opinion? Oddly, I don't really feel that that answer, like that, that question is answerable through the technology. I don't really think that there's anything I could point to on the technology. I really think it's, you know, the culture of the scientists um, readiness to uh, adapt and to contribute um, and kind of the desire for smaller companies to or smaller biotechs to start up, you know, globally and, uh, you know, kind of outside of these traditional hub zones that are kind of wanting this to happen, right? So I think it's more of a culture of readiness, uh, mentality of scientists towards predictions and uh, ML is very warm in the first place, the way that uh, people's ideas of producing content for the, like of going from an internet consumer to an internet content creator were starting to shift in that 2007 timeframe. I think, you know, just scientists globally are going from, well, instead of just kind of generating basic science, you know, I kind of want to take this and I want to apply that and I want to create therapeutics for it. So 
it's all the students and the professors in labs globally making this amazing research and these great discoveries about the effects of certain proteins on cells and kind of wanting to see that to the next stage and say, well, you know, why can't I be the one who develops a new therapeutic? <laughs> why can't I be the one who, who spins something up? And I think that appetite is what makes us very excited, right? If, if we can find a way to, to help democratize drug discovery in a sense, then, um, you know, I think we'd be in that great position that these internet companies were at the time uh, when people were ready for it. God, it seems like we're opening up a brand new metaverse here, Stephen, where if we democratize it in this way, it could be, I don't know, a bright PhD on a campus at an institution in South Africa who's building on a platform of a biotech based in North America and really driving value in that process. Is that is that is that the potential world we're going to be executing in in the coming year or two years? Or is it already happening? I, I think that's already happening. And, you know, there's there's the excitement, there's the appetite and uh, the types of problems that, you know, researchers are um, looking into are, you know, rare diseases. And, um, you know, uh, you bring up uh, South Africa, the uh, tropical diseases come, come to mind. Um, so uh, perhaps it's also kind of forcing the industry to, um, to broaden the scope of things that it's looking at as well by doing this. What are your favorite examples of teams or individual organizations? Obviously, I know your team are doing brilliant work in this space, but on a broader level, are there some kind of bellwether examples or, or trailblazers who are really making impact right now? Well, I'd like to say us. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, you guys are certainly, you know, many other you know companies uh, within this space that you know we definitely hold into high regard. But that's, um, you know, that's what we do aspire to. That's what we want to be able to help with. So uh, we've set together some academic partnership programs for that very reason um, is to promote that, and also because we believe that that training and that experience is very valuable to uh, the partners and the students and the postdocs that we're working with um, when we do that, because that provides them with exposure into an industry and interest and appetite to keep moving on that bit. So I think one of the recent, um, uh, perhaps I can mention this because we released a, an archive paper as a collaboration with uh, two other academic institutes uh, one that helped us um, kind of on the technology side and developed a new technology to identify protein targets through uh, Bo Wang at the Vector Institute and his student Tao Tian and, and uh, postdoc Maran, who helped us with a COVID-19 drug discovery program uh, where they would help identify targets. We take our technology that um, a new database that we had developed, PolyPharmDB, which is a drug repurposing database of, uh, it's kind of all by all predictions of drug target interactions of, I would say about a, a 10,000 clinically tested compounds. So these are compounds that have some phase one data, phase two data, or phase three, or that have been FDA approved relative to about 8,000 human proteins. So just kind of an all by all pre-computed uh, database of drug target interactions. We cross-reference their targets 
we cross-reference uh, the predictions that we made. And with the help of another academic group, uh, Kostin Antonescu from Ryerson University um, and postdoc Michael uh, from his group, they developed a, an accurate virus infectivity assay for you know, using real human cells and using live viruses to be able to um, really see. So we're not really compromising by doing this, this high throughput screen of thousands of compounds relative to some robotics. This is kind of a low throughput scientific screen accurate, low-throughput scientific screen. So we were able to uh, purchase, I believe it was uh, 26 compounds for testing based off of the prediction. We had a few hits, and it kind of led to the discovery of a new repurposing candidate uh, for COVID-19 that instead of acting directly on the virus, acts on uh, human cells. So the hopes there with that approach is it might be more resistant to mutations, more resistant to variant of concerns. If subsequent experiments show that this is indeed a viable candidate for clinical trials. So uh, just kind of in that context, um, I, I wanted to point that out because I thought it was a good example of um, the appetite from academic institutes to specifically with COVID-19, the pandemic came uh, back in March, April 2020, everybody wanted to be able to help in this space. Um, so uh, we partnered with a couple of academic institutes and everybody kind of played a really vital role in there. We found uh, not just repurposing compounds, but new targets that could possibly um, be useful as well as we move down the line and perhaps develop some new compounds that might be good against future coronaviruses or um, other viruses. Perhaps. God, the more you talk about that example where you had these wonderful partnerships with certain academic institutions, it, it's so akin to the way certain software's development uh, developed. So it, we are seeing this huge convergence now where by the modern day biotech company, their operating rhythm is no different from a best in class cloud based software business. So so that's impressive. And has a lot changed on the, the detail of the execution. So what I mean by that, Stephen, is when you are partnering with, say, X academic institution in, say, New Zealand, and they've reached out or you reached out to them, that process of getting things moving and doing all the boring stuff in terms of due diligence, certain legal requirements, whatever process you typically have to go through, I'm, I'm assuming, it can sometimes be quite painful in the classic sense. Have you guys made big changes around working with folks and, and fast tracking that in a way which something can be done and arranged within, say, a month and you just get working with that organization to yield results? Has there has there been a big change on the actual oh, yeah. back-end um, process to get things going? There was certainly a – like I would say that there certainly was a – bigger barrier at the beginning. And if we weren't that persistent about working with academics and um, and figuring out what those processes look like, then, you know, uh, perhaps uh, things may have looked a little bit differently. But, um, you know, we do have a uh, great strategic partnership team who were really committed to that and to that idea of getting our technology out there and 
um, you know, working with academics to help co-develop technologies, to help field test them, to help us get validation and, and so forth. And, you know, the, the first few were certainly a challenge, but um, after a while, it starts forming these patterns. Um, we start learning, you know, what the academic institutes want. And also because uh, the academic institutions are generally... Uh, looking for more of this, they're they're looking for more applied research. They're looking for more partnership. Uh, so, um, again, uh, feeding into that uh, point earlier, that there's an increased appetite. That appetite also comes from universities and uh, government programs as well, who are doing their best to help promote industry academic collaborations. I know in Canada, there's a lot of very good resources that um, we've had the advantage of working with. Uh, MyTax and uh, SOSIP are a couple good examples there, where they help fund some of these collaborative research programs. And for us, it provides us an opportunity to dabble in something that perhaps we might not have directly gone full force on, right? And, you know, for the academics, it provides them with what they need in terms of developing their research and getting publications. But for the students, the students are provided with this unique opportunity that sets them up that much better for uh, when they graduate. Uh, so it's, I think it's, it's, it's coming from a lot of different places. It's, it's not just more receptivity from the academic institutes and their uh, IP management divisions uh, who are also increasingly flexible, but it's also the government programs. It's, and, you know, a cultural difference in, in academics who, while they, there still is a really strong value and a very strong need for the basic science, that, you know, different research institutes are going to be much more variable in terms of balancing some really strong basic science with some really strong applied science. So yeah, I, I, I really think it's it's a whole ecosystem that's improving and that's uh, making things more accessible. So in terms of academic or quasi-federal labs being open to participating in, in, in that partnership model, or, or, or be it corporation, small, medium, or large, more on, say, let, let's focus on the academic and government side, because I know there were challenges in the past on, on getting things going and people executing has there been massive culture shifts on that front in the last year or two years where the red tape is reduced and you can just get going on on a partnership and, and trying to execute and, and deliver results? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's never red tape cleared. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know if it's, uh, if, you know, there are these systematic um, improvements or if it's, you know, our own team that's, been getting better at, at working with it, but it's certainly not much of a barrier um, anymore. If I think the the will in these particular cases is stronger than uh, whatever red tape exists. So even when that happens, we get through the red tape. <laughs> is it fair to say internally at, at Cyclica, you guys having a, a great radar on all of the external noise happening in the market, be it the academic space, private sector, quasi-government space, having that intelligence workflow, is that is that quite key as well to your day-to-day -day now? Because you're you're kind of looking outside more than ever. 
different phases of the company. Um, like I'll be honest, when we were much smaller, seven to ten people, it was certainly hard to navigate to keep track and 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 you know monitor all of that. But you know, as we've grown, I think we've especially now we're we're past fifty people, so it's uh, a little bit it's a little bit easier to have different people responsible for monitoring different things, right? And and within that group of fifty, there's there's many individuals who are very interested in certain elements. There's some individuals who are very interested in those you know government programs and. Um, those academic institutes and, and, and the partnerships. So as an organization, certainly it helps uh, maintain awareness. As individuals, like it can be hard to keep up. <laughs> I'm guessing with all those moving parts. So so thanks for that context, Stephen. So you, you got my mind spinning now on, on best case scenario. So just having some fun now and just looking at utopia, now we've got this brand new paradigm within the biotech space and and life sciences from a commercial aspect as a whole. Now we're kind of, as, as, as you touched upon earlier, we're kind of approaching that 2006, 2007 internet era within this space. What do the monetization models look like? Because God, my, my head's spinning on the way you could scale a business now. Is there... Is there certain revolutionary new ways you can kind of scale revenue and, and, and democratize monetization to enable a wider set of stakeholders to have skin in the game and, and benefit from, from doing great work and impacting healthcare? I mean, what does the lay of the land from a, just from a blue sky level, like literally going wild with this one, Stephen? <laughs> there's certain models you guys looked at just as an industry not 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 cyclical directly but just the, the space as a whole are there certain monetization models which are being talked about as wacky new ideas or or actually happening right now yeah well you know that's certainly kind of an interesting twist um as like in 2007 2008 time frame when YouTube content creators uh, started coming about and, and, and Facebook as well with many different user accounts and, and thinking about different monetization schemas. Uh, you know, it, it, it does, um, the models really did kind of, that, that succeeded in that space were the ones in which both the platforms and the individual contributors um, we're both benefiting from, right? If we think about, say, uh, YouTube and the rise of U- uh, YouTube stars. So I definitely think that um, the emerging solution that's going to come out of this space is going to follow similar lines, right? It's uh, models in which those academics who are coming up with the basic science and you know identifying new interesting targets and developing... Uh, disease models, cellular disease models, uh, are the ones who are going to be able to benefit from that research. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that there's a lot of hope and excitement for how biotechs are going to uh, be seeded and developed um, in the upcoming uh, five to ten years. Is it fair to say as well, with the rapid rise of, obviously, you've had blockchain technology, decentralized ledger technology really accelerate in the last 24 months. 
on a more of a public level, the huge spike in Bitcoin, Ethereum, whole <laughs> bunch of the, the whole digital asset space is going completely insane at the moment. It's kind of having its you might argue the 1998 moment, right? Within the crypto and digital asset space, space, but kind of removing all the hype and all the fluff we sometimes read about, but to look at the real impact um, that underlying technology can make, we're actually reading and speaking to prospective partners here around how if the development of a, of a drug is democratized, you could potentially really incentivize, say, an early stage academic researcher who maybe has a predictive algorithm, which is used by X biotech company, but they're now more open to sharing that on maybe, say, a marketplace where if you're a bright mind at an institution in, say, South Africa, for example, or Australia, you just upload your idea. It's tokenized. It's stored on the blockchain. So if X Biotech in San Diego says, wow, we love this predictive model, it actually enables this capability within our company. We're going to kind of timestamp this and reward you. So I've gone completely kind of on a broad level there, but kind of whizzed through that. <laughs> we butchered that example and missed a lot of detail. But does that make sense, Stephen, on how maybe is blockchain and, and this whole digital asset space and, and, and the areas like NFT, non-fungible tokens, bleeding into biotech? Are you seeing any talk around that or any blue sky conversations around how that space will converge into classic uh, in, 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 in biotech? Well, that's, that's certainly definitely uh, an interesting idea of having sort of a uh, an app store of, of, of comp bio, I think. <laughs> um, maybe we should look into that one and uh, and, and start something up on the side. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it just seems if we're linking this back to that internet story, it's inevitable, right? Yeah, but definitely but, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you seeing anything on a broader level outside of your organization? Just generally a 500,000 foot overview. Do, is this being discussed or being mooted as a as a way of yeah, really so, um, getting everyone involved? With blockchain in particular, um, I would say a little bit less so, but I have certainly heard about uses of blockchain for electronic notebooks. I, I can't really speak to how that is going in particular, but a way of kind of assuring that information isn't changed within, um, you know, experiments and that things that are recorded for, at least for the sake of being audited or, or verified um, afterwards. So I have heard of applications of blockchain in those areas uh, more so than I've uh, that I've seen, but uh, perhaps uh, perhaps that's a limit of my creativity right there. That uh, <laughs> of um, not necessarily seeing that much for blockchain more directly in this space. <laughs> well, Stephen, it's been fascinating connecting with you today. I mean, we could probably talk for hours because I think what you and the team are doing there at Cyclica is is amazing. You're, you're in a you're in a in a market space that we're deeply passionate about here at Patsnap, and we have well over probably a thousand customers who are directly or indirectly operating in this space so we really appreciate uh, you participating 
in innovation capital today. And just to wrap up, a bit of fun, a, a quick fire round, so completely off piste. Alien life form, believer or non-believer? A believer, for for sure. Why? Um, just the number of different places. I I think that alien life is probably not the way that we imagine it. Um, but uh, to say that there's nothing that might look like a bacteria of some sort on some planet somewhere is uh, is I think it's a, a bit out there. I think every time that I hear something new about the world of astronomy, it's that uh, the universe is 10 times bigger than we thought it was before. So <laughs> if the size of the universe keeps um, being larger than we expected, I guess the likelihood of aliens has to be uh, even more and more likely uh, than we expected every single time as well. And 2030, this whole comp biospace, which is spectacular, where do you think we are? by 2030 in terms of time to market for a drug, cost, exciting developments? Where where do you think we are by by that year? I think on the technology side, as, you know, people and scientists are more aware of ML and and how ML works, I think there's going to be a lot more experiments that are run just for the sake of training models, right? So, um, you know, I'm kind of thinking like, the cloud computing clusters like AWS and Google Cloud, they tend to have these uh, instances that are used during the downtime if, if nobody's otherwise purchasing the VMs during that particular time or renting the VMs during that time, that the downtime is just basically used for other types of computations, um, be it the uh, the folded at home, which was popular in the past, or the, uh, speaking of aliens, the, the, you know, the SETI at home type thing. Um, I think that like lab equipment, instead of focusing on uh, specific research programs, uh, especially robotic stuff, could be just generating data in dark spaces that of, you know, perhaps proteins that are just under study just for the sake of generating data. And, you know, I think there's going to be a lot more culture of generating um, data and information in, in dark spaces that aren't otherwise primarily studied just so that our predictions could potentially get better. So I think that that is definitely going to help. And in terms of the long-term vision towards you know patient outcomes, I think what this entire field is going to do, especially if, if there is a big emphasis on uh, boosting up these early stage biotechs that are coming out of the university, I think it's really going to serve, I think it's really going to benefit the more underserved conditions, right? The, the, the things that the academics tend to focus a lot more on. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more support for, uh, as I mentioned earlier, tropical diseases and um, uh, the more rare or um, the rare diseases and um perhaps things that are a little bit less canonical. And I think that that's, that there's really going to be an impact on those particular patients, perhaps in, in areas that um, weren't otherwise drug targets before that, you know, the creative academics somewhere just take a shot on seeing, Hey, is this something that could be potentially solved with a therapeutic and, and boom, um, there you go. So I, uh, I, I, I do think that there is a lot of, potential to expand the scope of what people consider druggable or what people consider as therapeutic opportunities. 
um, with this approach. Obviously, the classic headline of average cost of developing a drug is $2.5 billion and average time eight to 10 years. Where do you think we are in 2013 in terms of time and cost? I do think that there is going to be an impact. Um, but I also think that by doing a lot more trial and error, there's going to be a lot more error. So, you know, for potentially all the different groups trying or taking a stab at, at, um, um, at say, a tropical disease somewhere that um, perhaps not every one of them might be um, as successful as the other in bringing something all the way to the stage of market. But so I think it, it, it might change or may, it might increase the diversity of things. Um, but uh, to put a specific number on, on how much less expensive it might be, um, kind of very difficult. It, it should be definitely uh, less, um, especially if following the path of one of the more successful assets that end up making it to market. But um, I think it would be difficult to put a specific number. Um, I'd like to say cut in half. I'd like to say cut tenfold. <laughs> but any time will tell on that one. <laughs> yeah, we'll wait and see. Well, well, Stephen, really enjoyed the exchange today and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. All right. Thank you. That is it for today's episode with Stephen McKinnon. I want to thank Stephen so much for taking time out of his schedule and sharing all of this amazing information with us today. Here at Pat's Nat, we want to thank you for being a part of this podcast. And if you've listened up to this point and you're looking to spark an impactful discussion around innovation within your organization, then you can go ahead and download your free copy of our ebook, The Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint. In this report, we explore what connected innovation intelligence is and how the world's disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper-competitive world. And to grab a copy of that free ebook, all you have to do is go to patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that is patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please hit that subscribe button. Share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly be impacted by today's episode. Until next time, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.